The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, okay, let's uh, carry on. And uh, just to uh, remind you very briefly, we have been looking at the uh, Portalia Sutta about the, if you like, the downside of the sensory objects of the world. And uh, this, in a sense, was in response to the question we were looking at the idea of Anicce Dukkasanya, the perception of suffering in what is impermanent. Yeah, This is k kind of in part in response to that. That was this uh, sutta in the Anguttara Sevens, which we're going to continue now, 749, called Perceptions. Uh, one of those perceptions was Anicce uh, Dukkasanya, perception of suffering or of uh, uh, unsatisfactoriness in whatever is impermanent or unreliable. Uh, and this is one way of then contemplating the sensory objects of the world and the senses in general is to see them in this way, to see them as impermanent, unreliable, uncertain uh, yeah, and subject to suffering. That's what we have been kind of going through. And um, now we're going to have a look at one more perception from the that sutta in the numerical discourses, Anguttara Nikaya. This is called uh, Anicce uh, Anattasanya. Sorry, Dukkha Anattasanya. So this is the perception of non-self in whatever is suffering here. Yeah, so this is getting kind of more and more specialized in a sense. This is kind of a real Buddhist type of perception. This is the real, what Buddhism kind of comes down to in the end. Uh, yeah, this idea of non-self. So this is getting very Buddhist now, super duper Buddhist. So uh, what exactly, how, how can we do this? Uh, and uh, so I'm going to look at this fairly briefly, and then we'll move on to the next one uh, briefly, uh, soon afterwards. Uh. So, uh, are you all with me? You know where we are, yeah? Page 12 in this manuscript, uh, yeah? So this is then the last of these seven perceptions, and uh, this is how it goes. It was said, uh, the perception of non-self in what is suffering, bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, upasikas, upasikas, uh, when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and benefit, culminating in the deathless, uh, having the deathless as its consummation. Uh, for what reason was this said? And uh, so, then he says, when a bhikkhu often dwells with a mind accustomed to the perception of non-self and what is suffering, uh, his mind is devoid of eye-making, mind-making, uh, and the conceit regarding this conscious body uh, and all external objects. It has transcended discrimination and is peaceful and well liberated. Uh. So, um, first of all, you will probably recognize here this idea of eye-making that we have at the beginning here, mind-making. This is very similar to where we started off uh, yeah, on the one of the early days uh, on this retreat, we were looking at the Sabhasava Sutta, looking at the things that are to be uh, given up through seeing. Yeah, 
And uh, a large part of that was this idea of, you know, was I in the past? Was I not in the past? Who was I in the past? What did I become, having be- having been what? Uh, this almost funny kind of strange um, ideas uh, that were presented there, and about the future and about the present. Am I? Am I not? What am I? From where has this being come? Where will it go? Etc. Etc. And that is what is meant by eye making. Yeah, you making something out of uh, yourself in relation to the five aggregates. Uh, you're producing something. How can we overcome? How can we reduce this eye making? This conceit. The sense of self, the ego, if you like, at the end of the day, is really what this is about. Uh, it's ego is like an extension of this very basic eye making. Eye making is perhaps more fundamental, and the ego is what we build on top of that. But it all relates, all comes together in a sense. So how can we reduce these things? How can we ultimately overcome it? And it's very useful to reduce these things because uh, they get in the way. Yeah, a lot of the thinking that we do is based also on the same on these kind of things uh, it is based on you know you protecting yourself or um, kind of um, uh, uh, in, you know solidifying the sense of i and this kind of thing it comes that's what the thinking process does so if you can reduce the i making it means it actually makes it easier to meditate because you it's easier to become peaceful you're less defensive about who you are and all of that so uh, that's the eye-making. The mind-making is the ownership of things. Yeah, You may not think that you are the body, but you certainly own your body, right? This is my body. Keep your hands off. This is my body. Stay away here. Or uh, other things that you own. Yeah, This is my water over here. Don't what, look at my water. This is, <laughs> this is mine. And whatever else that we take to be ours. And the moment you take something to be yours... Uh, you want to control it. You are in charge of it. No one else can really, precisely, no one else should really touch what is yours. And because you are in control of it, you don't want to let it go. And it's the same problem again. It arises in meditation, exactly the same thing. You can't let go of your body, for example. One of the fundamental difficulties in meditation practice is that attachment to the body and the senses will stop you from going deeper. No, I am not willing to let go of sight entirely. I want to be able to see, yeah, whatever that is. Uh, so again, this is a sim- similar kind of idea. And the idea of conceit, well, the conceit in many ways is even more profound. It's the I am conceit. So ultimately, it's about giving up all sense of I am, which the Buddhist path is about. Uh, yeah, And um, many people find this kind of, it sounds a bit scary, doesn't it, if you kind of try to feel what that means. Uh, but of course it isn't. It's liberating. That's the whole point. Uh, so how do we do this? And uh, so you dwell with the perception of non-self in what is suffering. Yeah, and uh, very often the way these things are explained in the suttas is that you dwell with the perception of non-self, not just in what is suffering, but that which is impermanent and suffering. Yeah, these are very closely related to each other. Yeah? You can't you can can't really separate them out in the way these things are explained in the suttas. Yeah? So how do we how do we do this? The way this is explained elsewhere uh, is, uh, and it can be probably be explained in many ways. But the kind of standard way is to look at the six senses. Uh, you look at the non-self nature of the six senses. Uh, yeah. So for example, here, just to give you an example of how this would work. So you are seeing. Yeah. So can you control the word of sight? Can you see always what you want to see? 
the answer is no. Huh? Sometimes you see things you don't want to see. Huh? You see things that are disturbing, that are negative, that are disgusting. Huh? At a lot of the time you may see what you want to see, but sometimes you have no choice. Huh? Yeah, and uh, so this, so the problem there is that sight uh, gives rise to suffering, a degree of suffering. Yeah, and part of that is because it is impermanent. Uh, yeah, and that impermanence and that suffering of the eye. One way of thinking about that is that you are not really in charge. Uh, you're not in control of the eye. If you were in control of the eye, uh, you would see exactly what you wanted to at all times. Uh, but you don't. Uh, you're not in charge, and that not being in charge uh, is the non-self of the eye. Uh, so the fact that we, the eye, you have to suffer through your sights, the things that you see are impermanent, uh, meaning you're not in charge, uh, the eye is non-self, it is out of control, uh, you cannot have it the way you want it to be. Uh, and after a while, when you think like that, uh, you, you realize the eye is not yours, yeah? and the more, the more you realize the eye is not yours, not under your control, the easier it is to give up, because it is inherently suffering, inherently impermanent, inherently troublesome. Uh, there is something more stable than that, and that of course is the inner kind of uh, happiness or joy that you can achieve through meditation practice, uh, where the happiness is far more stable and reliable than it is in the external world. Uh, so then you learn gradually to let go of the I, uh, because that's hard. Yeah, I mean, you come to your meditation practice, uh, you try to become peaceful, uh, and there comes a point when you have to kind of accept that now I'm going to go blind. Yeah, it's quite hard to do that. I'm going to give up the eyes completely here, because you go to a, a place where you, there's no longer any access to your senses. You've gone beyond the ability to access them. That is what a really deep state of samadhi is about, that inability to access it. And if you can't access it, well, then it's as if you have become blind. Yeah, It's only temporary, but it's... From, from all, for all you know, it could be a permanent condition here. So it leads you to that ability to let go of the five senses and the body, which is the most difficult thing to let go of, the thing which stops us in the end from achieving deep samadhi. So this is the point here. This is a very kind of Buddhist, yeah, core Buddhist kind of contemplation. This is really... Uh, the thing that you know lead all the way to the end of the Buddhist path. So this is actually quite profound, uh, and it may even look a bit mysterious when you read it for yourself. You think, what on earth is this about? This is really strange. Uh, and um, so that is an example of how this works for the I. Yeah. So this is the initial idea of non-self, and then when you eventually attain a deep state of samadhi, you are able to let go of these things completely. Uh, then you get a far deeper understanding of the non-self nature of the I, because then you have completely let go of it, you have no access to it. When you come out afterwards, you know the I is definitely non-self. I couldn't even access it anymore, and I was perfectly happy without it, actually much better off without it. This I is no good, yeah, this is what you kind of, part of that insight, and you can let it go. No need to hold on to it anymore. It is uh, not part. It is not an essential part of you. If it was an essential part of you, you wouldn't be. You would be able to access it. The fact that you can't access it means it is not an essential part of you. Huh? Just like your car is not an essential part of you. Yeah, one day you sell your car. Huh? Obviously, obviously, it's not. It's not. It's not part of yourself. So this is how you then proceed with this perception, yeah, and then you do that through the other for the other senses as well. The eyes is some of the most difficult things. The ear also very hard, uh, because um, 
it's very close to us. The ability to hear is what connects us to the world in a very strong way. Often the last thing that you let go of in meditation is the he- sight of the sense of hearing. Uh, yeah? It's hard to let go of. Uh, you hear a sound. It kind of brings you back. Yeah? And, uh, but eventually, through this kind of contemplation, it takes you there. And then gradually, as you do this, uh, then you give up this in regard to the conscious body and all external objects yeah you stop uh, and this is kind of the bahidda sabbe sabban bahidda sabbe nimitta or something like that uh, and um, of course all external objects yeah is obviously this refers to the things that you perceive through the senses uh, so that's kind of why that is i think mentioned specifically um, but then ultimately also the conscious body itself. The conscious body here does not mean just the physical body, it actually means the entire mental life as well. Uh, also the sixth sense, the mind itself, ultimately uh, you see the same thing in the mind. And when you see that in the mind, then of course then all the eye-making, the entire I am idea just disappears uh, completely here. Uh. That's kind of the purpose of this. Yeah? That's why it culminates in the deathless. Uh, you can see how this perception is the last one of the seven. Uh, it is the final one because it is the most profound of these contemplations. Uh, it is the one that is the um, kind of hallmark of what Buddhist perceptions or Buddhist mental development is about. Uh, no more I. The I is gone. Uh, yay, no more I. Hooray. Wow, so nice. Uh, so blissful. Uh, <laughs> it just sounds weird but actually this is kind of the whole point of this path yeah but this is you give up these things and actually it is a positive thing here so um i'm not going to spend too much let's let's just uh, uh carry on and then see what the buddha has to say about this and this is the same passage we've seen before him if when a bhikkhu often dwells with a mind accustomed to the perception of non-self in what is suffering. His mind is not devoid of eye-making, mind-making and conceit regarding the conscious body and all external objects. If it does not transcend discrimination and become peaceful and well-liberated, he should understand I have not developed the perception of non-self in what is suffering. There is no distinction between my earlier condition and my present one. I have not attained the fruit of development. Thus he clearly comprehends this. And if, when he often dwells with a mind accustomed to the perception of non-self in what is suffering, his mind is devoid of eye-making, mind-making and the conceit regarding this conscious body and all external objects, And if it has transcended discrimination and become peaceful and well-liberated, he should understand, I have developed the perception of non-self in what is suffering here. There is a distinction between my early condition and my present one. I have attained the fruit of development. Thus, he clearly comprehends this. So again, you have, you just have to, all that this means is really just that you are aware of whether you are having success or not in your meditation, whether it really works. So what kind of meditation is this? Is this vipassana? Is it samatha? What is it? And what you will notice when you look at this, many people would maybe call this vipassana because you are specifically looking at the three characteristics like non-self. But the Buddha doesn't say this is vipassana. Rather, he calls it 
development of perception. Yeah, these are perceptions that you develop. This is a way of reflecting about the about the nature of a of a being. Yeah, and if you reflect on the nature of things in the right way, it leads to two things, and those two things are samatha and vipassana. And again, this idea that all proper contemplation, all proper meditation, they lead to both of these things. Here you are seeing non-self. When you're seeing non-self, it allows you to go deeper in the meditation, you have to get more calm. Because you have more calm, that allows you in turn to see deeper into things. You have even more cl clear seeing, more vipassana. That vipassana then in return in turn gives rise to more samatha, more calm. These two things, they always build on each other. They always come together. They're not really separable. Uh, so uh, it is both samatha and vipassana because it leads to both of these uh, qualities. Uh, let me just have a quick look at... Um, Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's basically the same. That's, that's fine. Okay. So that is the uh, idea of uh, contemplating non-self in what is suffering and what is impermanent. Uh, and uh, later on, we'll come back to the uh, Anapanasati Sutta, the Sutta on mindfulness of breathing, yeah, which is maybe the core, again, meditation Sutta in the Buddhist teachings. Uh, and uh, we will see there how you can develop this systematically through the process of meditation. Yeah, here it is kind of a little bit uh, taken out of context, a bit difficult to really grapple with what it means. Uh, but when you see it as part of the process of meditation, yeah, you watch the breath. Uh, as you watch the breath, things become more peaceful. Uh, that peacefulness is happening for a reason. It's happening because things are fading away. Suffering is disappearing. Impermanence, you are letting things go. And as you do that, you start to see the non-self aspect of things. Yeah, That's kind of what this is about. A uh, very important part of this. All of this comes out in the meditation process. Uh, it will hopefully become more clear to you then what this, is, what this actually means, uh, if it doesn't make sense now. But uh, for now, let's uh, stop there. And um, we have now had a look at the first of these uh, seven ways of overcoming defilements, the Sabhasava Sutta, which is the uh, defilements to be overcome through seeing. Yeah, Dasana, Pahataba, um, Asava, or something like that. And now we're going to come to the second one. Oh, four days have gone. We're only coming to the second one. I <laughs> So that's okay because the first one is actually by far the most significant one. It's very long, and the other, some, many of the other ones are very short. So it's uh, that's perfectly okay. And then the last one is quite involved again. The last one is very interesting, which is the seven factors of awakening here, and that has all to do with meditation practice. So the last one is important. So we're going to do the middle ones fairly quickly, and then we'll come to the last one here. So the next one is then the defilements given up by restraint. Yeah, and um, this is um, a very important part of uh, Buddhist practice in general. Yeah, this is what you see throughout the suttas when you uh, read the gradual training or you read any kind of development of the mind. The idea of restraint is found throughout the suttas, uh, and the idea with the restraint is to kind of have an even mind, not to allow your mind to be buffeted around by 
uh, desires and aversions, uh, but kind of have a certain equanimity in daily life. This is what this is, is about. Uh, and um, you may have found that already in your life, that uh, your mind is a bit more cool than it maybe it used to be. Yeah? Over the years, it's grown a bit more cool, grown a bit more mindful, uh, a bit more awareness of what is going on. Uh, and that is that restraint happening here. It may not feel like restraint, but it is restraint if your mind is becoming more peaceful. Uh. And this is defined in various ways in the suttas, and this definition here is the specific to this sutta. So let's have a look at what it says. Uh, defilements given up by restraint. What are the defilements that should be given up by restraint? Uh, take a mendicant who, reflecting properly, lives restraining the faculty of the eye for the distressing and feverish defilements that might arise in someone uh, who lives without restraint of the eye do not arise uh, when there is such restraint. Yeah, so the idea here is to avoid the feverish and distressing defilements. Yeah, and um, elsewhere uh, in the in the other suttas, this is called um, this is called uh, just um, uh, abhijja domanasa. Yeah, abhijja means like desire or attraction to things, and domanasa means literally bad mind. Do manasa, do is this negative prefix. Manas is the mind. So bad mental states like aversion and attraction, yeah, liking and disliking. This is what it kind of means. Uh, uh, this thing here. They are called here, but here they have, I use a different vocabulary. This is always interesting when you see a different vocabulary. Here they are called feverish and distressing. Yeah? Right? And that means the attraction and uh, aversion to the objects of the world. Uh, feverish. Remember we were talking before about the charcoal pit, taller than a man's height. Yeah? And you would writhe this way and that way to get, uh, get out if two powerful people were pulling you along into that one. No, don't put me into the charcoal pit. Uh, and yeah, and uh, that is a simile for the mind which is on fire. Uh, that's why it's feverish, because a fever is also hot. Yeah? The mind is unstable when you have a fever. It is kind of a bit out of control. Uh, these are feverish defilements. Parilaha is the Pali word for this. And, uh, so, uh, and this gives you an additional idea of what these defilements actually mean. Yeah, they are, you're on fire. They are feverish. Uh, desire and aversion. Uh, all of these things point towards the same thing. Yeah? These are metaphors yeah, for, for not obviously a literal fever, but a, a metaphorical kind of fever of the mind. Uh, yeah. This is interesting. This is what you are trying to avoid. Eh? You're trying to avoid having a fever. It's good, isn't it? Uh, no point in having extra fevers. Uh, so we try to reduce the fevers to the minimum. Huh? <laughs> and uh, so that's what this is about. Yeah, reducing the desires uh, and aversions uh, for the objects of the world. Uh, this is what is going on here. Huh? So this is what is meant by the restraint to avoid these things. Uh, these are here the asavas that are meant in this particular case. Uh, and what is interesting about, there's many interesting things in every, all of these little things. And it's probably not, you, you probably, it's hard for you to see all these interesting little points uh, because you're not really used to reading the suttas quite as much as I read the suttas, uh, which is quite a lot, <laughs> doing these retreats all the time and reading and, and translating. You know, you, you really get into these things quite uh, significantly. So, um, 
one of the interesting points here is this word reflecting properly here yeah because we are dealing here with the word restraint what does it mean to restrain and uh, as i always like to point out in english the word restrain almost always implies a certain force you restrain somebody it means you hold them back that's really what it means so they can't do what they you know would otherwise do this kind of the idea of restraint you restrain a child from running into the street yeah Stop, don't run into this kind of... Why? Because it's more suffering for the child if they run into the street and get hit by a car. So you hold them back from doing that. That's what restraint is, is using force. But here, we are not talking really about that kind of restraint. And that's why this uh, wise reflecting properly is so interesting. Because it gives an idea how that restraint comes about. It comes about not by an act of force not by holding back your mind as if it were a small child, uh, yeah, which sometimes it is, uh, yeah, let's face it. Uh, the mind <laughs> it wants to indulge here and there, play around in the world, and that's fine, uh, yeah, it's no problem. Uh, but instead of holding it back, uh, you reflect properly. Uh, and that is a far more powerful way of restraint than using force. Uh. This is such an important thing to understand. And this is actually how the Buddha talks about restraint almost in so many places. You see it here, but you also see it in one other sutta, which I probably will come back to later on. I can't remember now what is in here anymore. Yeah, it comes back later on. The two powers, uh, the power of reflection and the power of development. Uh, the power of reflection is how you overcome the defilements. Uh, the power of development is how you meditate. Uh, yeah? First you overcome the defilements temporarily through reflecting rightly. Then you develop the mind through meditation. Uh, but the overcoming of the defilements of the mind actually happens through reflection. Uh, that is the most important thing. Uh, that's what you see here as well. Uh, Reflecting properly, yoniso patti sanka. Yeah, yoniso patti sanka. You, um, this is what you use here. Yeah. So, um, what does that mean? What does it mean to reflect properly? Well, it means many of the things we have been talking about already. Yeah, we've already been talking about proper reflection. Yeah. When you remember the downside of the sensory objects of the world, it means you have less interest in them. Yeah, you go out and you see something, you think, yeah, whatever, it's kind of going to be troublesome for me anyway just give rise to desires to all these things and just attaches me to samsara huh? and it, there's no real satisfaction to be had, had anyway huh? i'm just running around like a dog going to the butcher you think about these similes a little bit yeah and you think okay who don't want to go there huh? and or you remember the inherent conflict that is inherent in uh, sensual objects of the world how we always fight over these things how it ends up with wars and family conflicts and all of these things uh, you remember the charcoal pit and you just kind of gradually get this feeling that this is not worth what it uh, may seem at first sight uh, yeah gradually 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 you take less interest in that world uh, and it's not going to happen overnight don't worry if it if you feel that you are pretty much the same person as you were before uh, these things uh, kind of work gradually under the surface uh. that is what that restraint is uh. and especially if you have the ability yeah to bring up those images at the moment when you kind of you are kind of in the grip of some stupid desire yeah oh i have to go to the casino tonight all my friends say i must go but should i really go to the casino oh okay let me think and, and then you kind of reflect properly about that i mean i'm sure you're not going to the casino already you probably maybe you are i don't know but probably not uh, yeah and but just to give you an example of what people might do otherwise uh, 
So that is how it works. Uh, yeah, you remember these things, you remember the danger, but this is particularly powerful uh, when it comes to anger and ill will. It is quite difficult sometimes to really grasp the problem uh, of the sensory objects of the world because the sensory objects are enticing. Yeah? It's difficult to see the downside. You may agree with the similes that I spoke about this morning, and still it is hard to really get your mind fully around that. Uh, but when it comes to ill will and anger, much more easy to see. Uh, and I will talk about this later on, how to deal with that. Uh, yeah? It's one of the suttas that I read at every retreat because I think it's so important uh, to have a proper perspective precisely how to deal with that. Uh, and that also is then proper reflection. Wait a minute. Uh, why am I getting upset with this person? Uh, yeah, is that really skillful? Is this going to lead to anyone's happiness and benefit? Uh, what is an alternative way of looking at this? Yeah. Ah, okay. I went to this Sutta class. They said this, the Buddha said this is the way. Okay, let me try that way instead. Uh, and then you try that and you find you don't get upset. Uh, yeah. This is kind of the amazing thing about this. These things actually work. They may seem like some theoretical thing on the paper, but these are very practical teachings. Uh, and you remind yourself of the delusion of the other person, uh, of their darkness, of not really knowing what they're doing. Uh, then you have compassion for the difficult people in the world. Uh, or you focus on their good qualities. These are kind of the two main things uh, to use. Focus on someone's good qualities uh, or having compassion. Uh, this is all Yoniso Patisanka. Uh, wake up. Yeah, pat patisanka yoniso actually the other way around, but that doesn't that doesn't make any difference. So, so that is um, how this happens. So how does it happen? More, maybe a bit more information would be useful. Yeah, on how this happens. Let me. I'll read out another example. This is the standard sensory strain formula. I, I didn't f remember to put it in here. Yeah. But I'll read out the standard sensory strength formula for you from the Sutta. This is found in the gradual training, for example, in the Chula Hatti Padopama Sutta, the shorter discourse on the elephant's footprint that I mentioned before. Um, and this is what it sounds like. Yeah? When you see a sight with the eyes, uh, you don't get caught up in the features and the details. Uh, if the faculty of sight were left unrestrained, bad, unskillful qualities of desire and aversion would become overwhelming. For this reason, uh, you practice restraint, protecting the faculty of sight, uh, achieving its restraint. Yeah, so that this is an, you can hear it is slightly different from the one we're looking at now. Yeah, it has uses slightly different words, uh, but the general idea is the same. And um, so here he talks about being caught up in the features and details. Uh, yeah, this is when you look at something and your mind lingers on that thing. Yeah? And then you walk past it yeah? and your mind is stuck in that thing. Yeah? For example, you are hungry yeah? and you walk past a, like a restaurant or a cake shop or something yeah? and you see that cake and you can't get that cake out of your mind afterwards because you could really do with that cake right now. Yeah? You know what I mean? Especially when you're hungry, it's very hard to overcome these things sometimes. Uh, so your mind is stuck in that shop. Or you see someone you don't like uh, and it brings up some memory and then your image of that person, yeah, or you have someone you have difficulties or whatever, image of that person gets stuck in your mind afterwards. Uh, you can't get rid of it. Uh, this is what this means, of means that you are 
caught up in the features and details of that thing. This is what this is exactly what we want to avoid. Yeah, we want to flow with things. Uh, we want the mind to flow along. We don't want to get caught up in stuff because then we lose our mindfulness. Uh, then we can't really react to the next object coming along in an appropriate manner because we are caught up in other things. Uh, so then, what do you do? You restrain the eye faculties that these desires and aversions. Here they are specifically used. The word desire and aversion, abhijja and dormanasa, the Pali words. Uh, they do not overwhelm the mind. For this reason, you practice the restraint. You protect the faculty of eye of the eye. So what does it mean to protect? Well, protection means two things. It means, first of all, mindfulness. Yeah, protection means mindfulness because you have to be aware of what is going on. If you don't have mindfulness, you can't do any protecting here. So you have to be aware of what is happening in your mind. Okay, now. I'm about this. If I if I keep on looking at this a little bit longer, I'm gonna it's gonna be upsetting towards me. I'm gonna get get some ill will coming up. Uh, yeah. So you are aware of that. So this is the first part of it: uh, having the guard, the guardian, being present in your mind. Uh, and once the guard is there, uh, then you have to have the strategy for overcoming the problem. Uh, it is not enough to guard. Uh, yeah. If you just see the thief coming in, the thief going out. Uh, that's kind of the um, the noting, thief going in, thief going in, thief stealing, thief stealing, thief going out, thief going out. Wait a minute, I'm supposed to stop the thief. Uh, yeah, that's kind of the point. Uh, not just being aware of the thief. Uh, otherwise you get fired. Your security guard who just has mindfulness is not enough. Uh, and you are supposed to be the security guard of your mind uh, to ideally stop the negative qualities from arising. Yeah, So it's not enough just to be mindful. Then you have to have the strategy for how to deal with those mental qualities. Like I mentioned the other day, in the suttas, it is always it, the Buddha says that it's not you cannot overcome anger just through mindfulness. Mind, you also need to have metta to overcome anger. It's a very important point. Yeah, sometimes the idea of mindfulness is oversold in our society as if it is a kind of panacea, cure-all that can sort everything out. It can't. Mindfulness is obviously very important because it gives you access to the ability to be aware, but you need more to overcome the problems of the mind. The security guard cannot just look at the thief going in and out. His job is to either call the police or do something. Yeah, That's kind of the point of the security guard. Otherwise, it's called a useless security guard. So don't be a useless spiritual practitioner. Yeah. Make sure you <laughs> you guard well. Uh, you do your job there with these things. Uh. So that is the uh, alternative version of the uh, of this formula. Yeah, and I will talk much more later on about how that actually happens. Again, how the restraint happens uh, because that is such an important part. Uh, how do you reflect to restrain? Yeah, and I think you can never talk about these things enough. Uh, and uh, even though I myself talking about this a lot. Uh, I still enjoy talking about it every time because it reminds me uh, what I'm supposed to be doing here. So um, there you are. Now I'm going to give you a third version of the same the same passage. Yeah, Just in case you aren't bored yet, I'm going to make sure that you <laughs> really <laughs> drive it home. So um, this is from the Majjhimanikaya 152. Middle length sayings 152. This is called the Indriya Bhavana Sutta, the development of the faculties. It's a very nice sutta in many ways. 
And this has an alternative version of this uh, fact. This, this thing again, just to kind of see it from a slightly different angle. Huh? So this, in this case, it's called the development of the faculties. Yeah, not the restraint, but the development. So you can see again different angles on the same thing here. And this is how it reads in this particular case. So. Now, Ananda, how is there the supreme development of the faculties uh, in the noble one's training here? Here, Ananda, when a bhikkhu, bhikkhuni, upasaka, upasaka sees a form with the eye, there arises in them what is agreeable, there arises what is disagreeable, there arises what is both agreeable and disagreeable. Huh? They understand. There has arisen in me what is agreeable. There has arisen what is disagreeable. There has arisen what is both agreeable and disagreeable. But that is conditioned, gross, dependently arisen. This is peaceful. This is sublime. That is equanimity. The agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose ceases in them. And equanimity is established. Just as a man with good sight having opened his eyes might shut them, or having shut his eyes might open them, so too concerning anything at all, the agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose, ceases just as quickly, just as rapidly, just as easily, and equanimity is established. This is called the Noble One's Training, the supreme development of the faculties regarding forms cognizable by the eye. So, um, yeah, so again, the, the principles here are very similar, but the, again, a slightly different angle on these things. Uh, yeah. Um, actually, I have this is here, isn't it? Uh, so. You see something with the eye, yeah, and you either like it or you dislike it, or sometimes we both like and dislike, yes, they are both agreeable and disagreeable sides to something, yeah. And uh, first of all, you understand, and this is such an important point, first of all, understanding, in other words, this means that you are aware, you have awareness again, it shows the importance of mindfulness, you know what is going on, yeah, you are aware, this has arisen, agreeable, disagreeable, or either, yeah. And um, this awareness has so many different degrees. Uh, and one of the things that you will find as hopefully as your mind develops, you become more mindful, you gain more clarity, is that your ability to see this will be will increase. Yeah, And uh, whether you are a monastic or lay person doesn't matter. Obviously, it's helpful to be a monastic because there's less things going on. But in lay life, it's basically exactly the same. Uh, your awareness of uh, uh, your mental state is improving all the time. You know when something is going wrong, uh, or, or right for that matter, because of the mindfulness becoming stronger. It's such an important part of mindfulness, ability to see things, uh, sometimes even small things, yeah, when they, when they come. Uh. So that is the first thing you understand. Yeah? Again, the idea of mindfulness being established. Uh, and then yeah, comes the next one, and you will see again, very interesting, it is all about Reflection, yeah? Again, one more time, just to make, drive this point home. And it says, but, yeah, he understands, this is conditioned, this is gross, this is dependently arisen. This is a reflection, right? This is remembering something about the nature of these things. In other words, it is conditioned, in other words, that agreeable feeling, 
depends on uh, the circumstances. You are looking in a certain way, uh, uh, you are thinking about it in a certain way. It comes about because those particular conditions. Uh, and conditions are always, they are also dependently arisen, it says here. Dependently arisen is very closely related to the idea of paticca samupada. Here it is paticca samupanna, a very similar kind of idea. So things have arisen dependent on conditions. And because they are arisen dependent on conditions, they are unre unreliable again. They are uncertain. You can't have things the way you want to have them. Because nothing to do with you, nothing to do with the self that you can control these things. They come about because they, uh, the forces of nature, the world has kind of come together in a certain way. And then these things appear. That's what you understand. Yeah. You remember that all of these things are dependently arisen. They last only for a while. They're really out of your control. Got nothing to do with you. Has just had to do with the uh, things coming together in a certain way. Uh, this is an alternative way of thinking about impermanence. Yeah, this is the same thing as thinking of impermanence, but it's a different angle on the idea of impermanence. Things are impermanent precisely because they are dependently arisen. Uh, it's the same thing. Yeah. These are very important kind of reflections in the suttas, especially when it comes towards the very end of the path also. Yeah, the, for example, uh, when you want to contemplate things like the samadhi states, uh, and you want to see them as impermanent. Now we're coming to really the end of the path. Uh, maybe we shouldn't go there yet, but uh, yeah, you understand that even those most powerful, beautiful states you can have in meditation, they too are dependently arisen. Uh, you know that because eventually you have to come out of those states. Uh, yeah, you have to let them go, huh? and then you have to kind of reattain them, and eventually the penny drops. These two are not really there permanently, huh? unless if you are part of another religion, maybe Advaita Vedanta or something like that. Huh? You would say, "Wow, these are always there. Yeah, they're just behind the surface. When I die, I will be there." Huh? But then you are going beyond the evidence. Huh? You are adding to the experience, and you are seeing something permanent in what actually uh, the Buddha says is not permanent at all. Huh? So, um, all of this is dependently arisen. We're now dealing with the simple things, yeah, the five senses in particular. Further down, we're also dealing with the mind. It is not only dependently arisen, but it's gross, yeah. It is not refined. It is not something which is really, it may be agreeable, but it's kind of in a gross kind of sense, yeah. The happiness we get from these things is not all that satisfying, yeah, as we saw before, yeah. So what we're looking at here is really dukkha and uh, anicca, yeah, impermanence and non-self. You remind yourself of that, uh, and then you let go of your attachment. You let go of, yeah, this is agreeable, yay! Actually, this is agreeable, but it's not really interesting here. Yeah. That's what you have you think instead. Yeah. And th this may sound as if I'm asking, uh, the Buddha is asking, I should say, the impossible. How can we live like this? Uh, but uh, remember that uh, this is not necessarily about pushing away all the agreeable things in life. This is not really what it refers to. Uh, the, primary thing, the primary thing it refers to is stopping having neg very strong negative reactions to things in life. Uh, this is the most important thing. Yeah. So for example, when we talk about sense restraint, one of the really important things here is how we deal with other people. Uh, not allowing other people to kind of pull us by the nose. Yeah, you get angry and upset with people, and then you really like someone at the wrong time or whatever, but especially getting angry with people. Yeah, this is a core aspect of this. Uh, 
then it kind of makes more sense because this sounds almost unattainable if you kind of take it in its broadest sense. Everything in the world, you should neither like it nor dislike it. Well, that is asking a lot. And that only really happens way down the path. But the initial things here are very simple. Yeah, how to learn, how to deal with other people in your life. This is one of the most important things. Uh, because if you can deal with everyone in the world with equanimity, a sense of evenness, uh, then, wow, you have done a lot. Yeah, done really, really well. Uh, and even in monastic life sometimes, you may have some monastic friends that you have to oh, grit your teeth. <laughs> and you have to see, oh, I must see the good side in them. At least have equanimity and compassion towards them. Yeah, it's, the monastic life is just like ordinary life. It's just uh, you wear diff funny clothes and shave your head. That's the only difference, really. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, actually, I like wearing these funny clothes. It's kind of, kind of nice. So, um, yeah, and then you understand this is peaceful, this is sublime, that is equanimity, yeah, the evenness of mind. When you flow through the world, uh, you flow through society in an even way. Yeah? You don't get buffeted around, drawn this way, pulled that way by the world, but you flow through things. Uh, you have a sense of mindfulness wherever you move yeah and you it's, it's such a beautiful thing when you have that you have a feeling of being in charge of yourself as i mentioned before yeah? if your mind is out of control always being attracted to one thing repelled by something else getting angry here desirous there it's like you're completely out of control the world is controlling you yeah? but when you're mindful you're standing back you have a distance between yourself and the external things it's a feeling of being in charge yeah you know what's going on. You can decide what you want to watch, what you want to see, how you want to react to things. Uh, you know, it's not the world in charge. You feel like you are in charge. Of course, you're not really in charge in the sense of a self, uh, but you are, there is this feeling of being in charge in the sense of uh, you know the kind of you can you can decide what kind of mental state you want to have. Uh. So this is uh, the idea of sense restraint. Uh, um so um you have the simile here as well. I don't know if it's worthwhile looking at that simile in more detail. But it has the simile of just as a man with good eyesight opening his eyes might shut them, or having shut his eyes might open them. Yeah, this is a simile also found in the uh, Vitaka Santana Sutta, the calming of all thoughts. Uh, yeah, that you just kind of turn away from things when you sometimes you turn your mind in a different direction uh, and then you're not so uh, uh, bothered by all of these things in the world. Uh. Okay, I think uh, let, let's leave that there. The uh, defilements to be given up by restraint. Uh, because we're going to talk more about this later on. But uh, this is just like a general overview of these things. So, so um, okay, so I hope you are okay with that. <laughs> and this is how the Buddha teaches. And um, you know, these, these teachings are quite, they are in, in the profounder sense, they are very profound because they can take you a long way on the path. But in the more ordinary sense, they're also very useful for everyone. So take the useful part of this. Don't try to practice these things too profoundly. 
because that is very difficult. Uh, but do know your own mind. One of the most important things on the Buddhist path is to know yourself. Uh, what do you need? Uh, what are my defilements? Uh, what are my problems? Uh, yeah. And be very clear about that is very, very useful because then you can apply these things in the right way. Uh, what are the things that upset me in the world? Uh, and if you are the kind of person who is very gentle, you don't get upset by many things. Uh, and some people are like that. Some people are amazing, almost saintly people in this world uh, who flow around having a sense of kindness almost to everyone. Uh, very beautiful when you see that. It's not just uh, monastics. You find lay people who are like that as well. And it's just beautiful to see people who have that uh, equanimity in the world. Uh, but if you are one of those, then look at your desires instead. Uh, yeah? how, can, how can you reduce your desires a little bit? Uh, know what you need. Uh, what are your specific areas and problems? Uh, don't try to apply these teachings blindly. Uh. Yeah, there's a beautiful simile found in the uh, uh, sutta I mentioned the other day, the Pangsudovaka Sutta, the sutta on the earth remover or the earth cleaner, uh, whereby you clean gold yeah you purify gold and in that sutta it gives a sequence and you start with the coarser defilements of gold and middling the refined and the super refined and eventually you put the gold into the oven or whatever it's called the you know you, you you burn it and then get the last defilements out yeah and melt it and smelt it all that kind of stuff and uh, so it's a gradual process there and you have to know where on that gradual process you are yeah, do I need first thing is to stop killing living beings? Yeah, killing first thing is to stop killing humans. Uh, so hopefully no one here is t killing too many humans. Uh, <laughs> and then stopping other things. Yeah, like uh, killing beings in general. Yeah, stealing and and uh, you can take these things quite to quite quite refined levels. Then there is speech. Speech is more difficult. Uh, and deal with the area of speech, yeah? How you can speak more gently and kindly to others. Uh, thinking of speech as a gift you can give others at any time almost. Uh, and then start to move towards the mind, how you can be more content. Just be content with what you have already, uh, not kind of amassing more all the time. Uh, uh, having thoughts that are more leaning towards compassion and kindness rather than leaning towards uh, ill will and, and anger and hatred, uh, yeah? Stage by stage, you have to know where you are in this whole sequence uh, and then work with those things that are still a problem for you. And then you are doing this in the right way. Uh. So don't try to apply these things kind of literally the way they are here. You have to pick out those aspects that apply to you. This is very important, otherwise you're going to get very, very frustrated. Uh. And you're going to chuck out Buddhism and you're going to swear never to touch a Dhamma book ever in your entire existence in Sangsara, which is going to be a long one, right? If you throw out the Dhamma books, you're going to have a long journey in Sangsara. So uh, be gentle with yourself, be kind to yourself, understand yourself, know what you need to do. Uh, then you're going to be on the right track. Yeah? Some people are too idealistic uh, and that often backfires. Uh, Anyway, let's have a quick look at the uh, next one here. This is now the defilements to be given up by uh, using. And uh, this particular passage is really meant for monastics, but it can be extended also to be uh, used for lay people as well. It doesn't really make that much difference. So let's have a look at what it says. And what are the defilements that should be given up by using? Take a mendicant who reflecting properly, yeah, you notice they're reflecting properly again, uh, patisanka yoniso, 
makes use of robes only for the sake of warding off cold and heat, for warding off the touch of flies, mosquitoes, wind, sun and reptiles, and for covering up the private parts. So that is why we have robes. Yeah? We don't have robes to be fashion models. We don't have robes to kind of wear this brand or that brand. We keep things really simple. Yeah. And uh, you will be surprised that in monastic circles also there are fashions sometimes. Uh, yeah, the kind of bowl, uh, bowl stand you're supposed to have is supposed to be this type. Whether the robe is sewed in a certain way or not, you wouldn't even notice the difference. But if you are a monk or nun, you notice the difference straight away. Yeah, this is a fashionable monk or nun. This is an unfashionable one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's not entirely untrue, actually. And it depends a little bit, on, on, of course, on the person. Yeah? Some people are not like that at all. I mean, Ajahn Brahm would never be like that. But uh, you do find this in monastic circles. And I'm sure Venerable uh, uh, Ajahn Nisayonor can confirm that <laughs> with me. And, uh, so that, but that is not the point. Yeah? The robes have a purpose. And they have a very practical purpose. Not to kind of enhance your ego or your sense of self or anything like that. Uh, simple things. Yeah? Not to be cold and warm. To stop all these kind of um, uh, insects and reptiles or whatever. And to cover up. To be kind of modest in the way you, the way you live. This is kind of the purpose of these things. Uh, and remember the same thing for lay life. Yeah? You don't have to kind of show off and to be to all of these kind of things uh, and uh, be really uh, posh and look really kind of uh, hot or whatever it is uh, <laughs> in your in your clothes yeah things can be very simple uh, and this is one of the nice things about going on retreat as well everyone kind of wears it's kind of loose fitting simple uh, you look like it's a blob of nothing yeah we're kind of walk, wandering around and that's marvelous to look like that sometimes uh, not taking oneself so seriously uh, not kind of checking what you look like in mirror do i look really do i look right in this or not uh, there's something liberating about that uh, not having to think about yourself uh, yeah and uh, I'm not saying that you should never dress up or anything. It's entirely up to you. But, uh, you know, it's nice to kind of make these things really simple. And uh, a lot of conceit already is kind of taken away simply by, simply by that. Uh, uh, using things in the right way. Not using them that in a way that gives rise to defilements. Uh, but using them in a way that reduces the defilements. That's kind of the bottom line. Yeah, We're trying to avoid defilements here. Uh, conceit i am this is mine this is the real me i'm wearing the i'm the kind of person who wears these kind of clothes yeah you are lesser because you wear lesser clothes than i or, or something silly like that yeah. so um that is the idea of the robes and then you have the similar thing for everything in life that we use yeah and for monastics it's quite simple you usually talk about the four kind of requisites uh, and then in modern life, we have the five kind of requisites. This is the fifth kind of requisite over here. So you have to use this properly, not for entertainment, not for you know whatever uh, you know whatever you can use these things for. So um, anyway, reflecting properly, you make use of alms food, not for fun, not for indulgence, adornment, or decoration, but only to sustain this body, to avoid harm and to support the spiritual practice. In this way, I shall put an end to all the discomfort and not give rise to new discomfort. And I will live blamelessly and at ease. 
Yeah, you don't eat just to kind of indulge and for fun. Adornment and decoration, I think someone has made the point that that should actually belongs with a robe instead. It doesn't really belong with arms food. It fits much better with a robe, yeah, than it does with uh, arms food. I think in the Chinese version of the sutta, these are actually at the top there. So there may have been some, maybe it has it's a fault in the transmission of the Pali. Sometimes there are minor, minor faults like that. Uh, yeah, not for fun or indulgence, but just to sustain the body. Yeah, yeah to avoid harm and to support the spiritual practice. What is the ideal food to support your spiritual practice? Uh, that should really be the question. Uh, yeah, so just to feel at ease, not too much so that you rise to discomfort, you feel too full, and then you get really tired, uh, super duper tired after the meal. Uh, and, uh, and also to end the old discomfort, the hunger that you may have. Uh, you can live blamelessly and at ease. So it's common sense, really. That's what it is. Yeah, it's not not nothing kind of super duper profound with this at all. But it's something that you can extend into any kind of life, really, especially when you are on retreat to find that balance. I know sometimes when people come on retreat, they are really scared. Yeah, eight precepts. Oh, I don't know what's going to happen in the evening. I'm going to get hungry in the evening. Yeah. And uh, the fear of not being in control is often what this comes from. I remember we had one lady who came to my retreat and said, Oh, I, I'm really, really worried about what's going to happen in the evening. Yeah, when I, I can't, the fridge isn't there, I can't just go and get what I, I want or whatever. And, um, and this fear of not being in charge, yeah, of being offered a meal twice a day. Yeah. And uh, that is uh, often, sometimes, uh, uh, what happens, yeah, and then you eat too much at midday because you're afraid you're going to get uh, hungry in the evening and this kind of thing, yeah, and then you really destroy the the whole retreat situation. Uh. So finding that balance is important, uh. and um, uh, then you are on the uh, the right track. Yeah, it's interesting. The Buddha actually does uh, encourage these things, yeah, like keeping the eight precepts, not eating in the evening, uh, not always being in charge of what you do, and uh, renouncing those things. Uh, he encourages that uh, in the uh, in the suttas. Uh. Reflecting properly, they use lodgings uh, only for the sake of warding off the cold and heat, the warding off the touch of flies, mosquitoes, wind, sun, and reptiles. I think the reptiles is creeping things. Uh, it's more than just reptiles; any kind of creeping animal, like cockroaches and what have you, to shelter from the harsh weather and to enjoy retreat. Yeah, so here you use a dwelling to enjoy retreat. This is kind of uh, beautiful. Uh, and uh, so um, monks and nuns had dwellings going all the way back to the time of the Buddha, but often very simple dwellings, maybe just a grass hut or something. Uh, but it was sufficient to ward off the problems of the weather uh, and beautiful for being on retreat, for being far away, for closing yourself off from the world outside. Uh, that's what the ideal kuti is like, uh, yeah? Enjoying retreat. You will always notice that the suttas, whenever the Buddha talks about meditation, it talks about uh, uh, being out in the open, yeah? Or going to an empty hut, uh, yeah? The idea of sunyagara uh, abhiramati uh, means to delight in empty dwellings. Uh, and uh, you're not supposed to say that as a monastic, oh, I delight in empty dwellings. Uh, I delight in empty dwellings. <laughs> it's a kind of conceit, yeah? It's like saying, I really enjoy meditation, yeah? I'm a profound meditator. Yeah? It's like, uh, that's what it, actually what it's supposed to mean. It's, it's a... Um, 
it, it's a way of kind of a s saying something about your meditation practice. It's interesting in the suttas because of all the monastic rules uh, about not uh, bragging or lying about your meditation. Yeah, These things actually come up. So you can see some of the ways that they would use to talk about these things in ancient India two and a half thousand years ago. I delight in empty dwellings. Uh, oh, really? Wow. That's pretty cool. Uh, but uh, they have a purpose, yeah? Shelter in empty dwellings, enjoying retreat. Uh, so again, the idea, just, you know, you whatever you have in this life, uh, you use that. Uh, you don't worry too much about it. Uh, you don't try to go do better. You don't always try to do things for the sense of ego and self. Uh, you are happy with what you have. Uh, this is very closely related to the idea of contentment, uh, keeping things simple. Contentment is beautiful because when you are content, you're already decreasing desires and aversions a lot uh, because you're not always searching for more, adding, accumulating, going further. Uh. Properly reflecting, always properly reflecting, right? Reflecting, 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 so important. They make use of medicines and supplies for the sick, yeah? only for the sake of warding off the pains and ills and not and to promote good health. So we should only eat chocolate for, the, for promoting good health. Uh-oh. <clears throat> Do we, I think, do we have to, uh, we, we may have to, uh, we may have to uh, re-evaluate our consumption of chocolate a little bit. Uh, deep, it's never, it's hard to become perfect in this path. Uh. <laughs> so, but again, they get the general idea, yeah? The idea is just to not to indulge in things, uh, but to find that balance in things. Uh, is again, the idea, idea here, yeah. For the distressing and feverish defilements that might arise in someone who lives without using these things, uh, yeah, in other words, using them appropriately, uh, do not arise when they are used appropriately. Uh, these are called the defilements that should be given up by using in the right way, uh, using properly. Uh. Okay, so uh, there you are, a little bit about using, uh, and uh, so please... Uh, uh, see if you can also use your things in life in a in a positive way, not in a way which uh, gives rise to problems, but uh, in a way that l leads to an even, balanced, harmonious life. Uh, then you are on the right track. Yeah. I'm going to stop there uh, because uh, it is already gone past the hour, uh, and then we will continue with these suttas tomorrow morning. Yeah. So have a nice afternoon, have a nice cup of tea, and we'll see you back again at 6.30 this evening here. Yeah.